Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Let's Talk Surgery podcast for the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh. I am your host, as always, Gregory Akata, colorectal registrar up in Edinburgh. And with me is my good friend and co-host, Ceci. How are you? I'm doing very well, Greg. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Looking forward to this episode because of a personal interest from a medical leadership point of view. This episode is part of our leadership series that tries to focus on leading through crises. And today I'm pleased to say that we're joined by Dr. David Rosser, who is the Chief Executive of UHB Trust down in Birmingham. Dave, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Got next week off, so I'm particularly good at the moment. Excellent. Within the context of lockdown, quick question, what are you doing with your holiday? Uh, I shall be building a dining room table is my plan. Oh, very nice. Nice. So now you may or may not have listened to these podcasts before, but what we try to do is try to get a sense of the individual behind the message. So we try to get to know you first, and then we delve into some of the messaging. So a very open question, who is David Rosser? Gosh, that is open, isn't it? Um, so I'm from South Wales, where my uh, folks are from uh, South Wales Mining Valley, which is my background. Although I moved moved around quite a lot in my upbringing, um, my dad worked for a pharmaceutical pharmaceutical company. <coughs> as a uh, started off as an analytical chemist and ended up as senior vice president of one of the big pharmaceutical companies. So we moved around quite a lot. Um, I sort of gravitated back to South Wales to go to university in Cardiff. Um, decided I wanted to be an intensive care uh, doctor before intensive care existed as a specialty. So um, it was an in- interesting career path way, way before Calman or anything when you just looked up jobs in the BMJ and built your own career. Yeah. Um, and uh, en- ended up taking a consultant job in Birmingham in 96, November 96, which you may be aware is just before the requirement for a CCT uh, came in because... Um, I was actually doing an academic job at the time, but um, because I had such an unorthodox training, um, there was a sort of, basically, I'd have to go back and do an entire, redo my entire training if I didn't get a consultant job. So I sort of opted for a consultant job in Birmingham. Uh, and if I'm honest, I've said this up here a few times with a view to staying for two or three years uh, and moving back um, into an academic post, but uh, got a bit distracted by trying to improve the way the IT ran. And... Um, uh, and on from there, really. And we'll cover some of those in a bit more detail as, as we go through the podcast. So the next element is to try to unpick the first question of who you are by asking some relatively light and gentle quickfire questions. Nothing controversial, I hope. So the first thing, why critical care or intensive care uh, at that time? Um, it's, it's always a slightly difficult question to ask. I think probably the best answer is it, it, it felt like it was an opportunity to do care at the level of precision and the level of detail that that I that appealed to me. You know, intensive care is an interesting place. So you, you're a surgeon, you said you you know have patients in the ICU. You know, we are. You know, it, it, there are downs, not downsides as such, but there are pressures. Just like in every job, there are unique pressures to the ICU um, uh, that that make it not not necessarily the least stressful place in the. In the hospital to work but um, the upside is that we are staffed and kitted out and um, and trained really uh, to, to as I say really spend uh, that length of time on all the details managing the families uh, you know, communicating with the families properly we, we've got the time and the staffing to do things arguably in the way that should be done across across the, the pitch in ITU that's what it felt like 
way back in the uh, in the eighties in Cardiff. Uh, intensive care was um, some of it inevitably is the people you meet when you first start. And the intensive care team in Cardiff were very impressive and very engaging. For some of it, inevitably, is that. But it, the main thing was just the, the, the feeling that you could do it properly, if you like, rather than doing things on it as best you can on the wards. And, and there's always that element of you know inspiration or or, or uh, being yeah being inspired by the enthusiastic folk that you've worked with before. As a follow-on to that, then say you weren't quite as inspired by the intensivists in Cardiff. What alternative career path, medical or otherwise, would you have pursued if not uh, critical care medicine? Well, I, I mean, I, I don't know whether it's true, but I said to myself that if, if because it, it was a bit speculative deciding I want to do intensive care full time. Um, because yeah, the, the, I mean, I think I think I was the, the first, and for a long time, I was the only uh, consultant in the country who was on the register as only intensive care. I think I was the ninth or something full-time intensivist appointed in the country because it was all early days. So to be honest, what I said to myself was, if I can't, if this career path doesn't work out, I'm actually thinking I would leave and work for industry, like my father did. I'm rather glad it didn't go that way. <laughs> and that's in the background of having a degree in pharmacology. Not a degree, no. I trained in I trained in uh, pharmacology. Uh, the, the only uh, the only numbered post I had in, in uh, was a uh, clinical pharmacology lecturer in UCL. Interesting. Okay. Uh, next question is around the things you miss the most. So number one is what one thing do you miss the most about intensive care medicine? The um, there's a special relationship, if it, if it works, between uh, intensive care nurses. Uh, I'm married to an intensive care nurse, so I have to say that. <laughs> uh, it, um, but yeah, no, I think I think the relationship between the intensive care uh, consultants and the intensive care nursing teams is is quite special, and I do miss that. I mean, I've got my own relationship now, and the executive team here is is a great team, and I would, unfortunately, enough, I think they would all agree that we are friends as well as uh, our working relationships. But but. There is something special about that um, dynamic between an IT consultant and, and the nursing team when, when it's working well. Spoken by a good leader who uh, always brings it back to his current team and the friendship that exists there. Well done. Uh, the second thing then is what one thing do you miss most about South Wales or Wales in general? I haven't, I haven't lived in Wales since uh, for a very long time now. Uh, it's a really difficult question. Probably, probably, uh, probably the most obvious uh, thing is is, uh, is the rugby, really. Uh, <laughs> I uh, had my bet that you'd say that. Yeah, and I don't know when this is going to go out, but just for, for the record, it was last Saturday <laughs> that we won the uh, Triple Crown, so I'm going to have to say that, aren't I? I was I was fairly certain that would come up either with with you saying that or me having to uh, remind you of that. So well done to to you and the Welsh contentment. Um, moving on now, I think you know clearly through your through your time and your journey and your journey through leadership, um, you must have had some role models along the way. So if you could pinpoint one role model that you're or multiple actually role models that you've had from a leadership standpoint, who springs to mind? Uh, probably go all the way back to Bridgend when I did my medical house job, medical SHO jobs, first three years after my house jobs way back. Uh, and there's a chap called um, John Morris, who's one of the senior um, consultant positions with interest in, in gastroenterology. Uh, yeah, in the old days in, in Bridgend, there were five consultant positions, uh, small small teams, they were, were those days. Uh, and he... Um, 
he, he was a very impressive guy. Taught, taught me a lot of the, probably a lot of medicine, but he taught me a lot of the, the softer skills that, that go around just making sure that the, the teams work together. Part, partly explicitly, partly, partly just by watching him. Final one from me then. A lot has made, especially now in the context of COVID and, and, and how we deal with this, about having that work-life balance. And, you know, having never been a chief executive, I can only imagine how difficult that is. Uh, so two-part question. Have you managed to achieve a workable work-life balance? And if yes, how do you do that? In the last nine months, I mean, the only, the only real answer that is no. no I, I haven't. Um, but you know, first things first, it's it, you, you've got to get get through the crisis. I mean, so when I've said I'm, I've said I'm uh, on leave next week. So, so Monday will be the first day off I've had since last May. Um, really? So uh, we've we've been doing seven day week calls for five months now. Um, which we just stood down. So last weekend was the first time we didn't do weekend weekend calls. Uh, so no, it's not just me. I'm sure it's true across across the country. It's certainly true of a number of the senior managers in this organisation. We, we we haven't had a work life balance for the nine month, last nine months at, at all. But you accept that when you take these. The, I mean, I don't think anybody's expecting COVID clearly, but it's part of the deal. You, if you take on these sort of roles, then, then the leadership doesn't go away. Well, I, I really hope you enjoy building that table and uh, enjoy the week. Thank you so much for taking us through that absolutely fascinating walk, walk through your clinical life and through your day-to-day life. And gosh, I, I can't imagine not having a day off for so long, but that is unfortunately the reality of the current yeah. pandemic we live in. It's, and just, it's, it's interesting, actually. It just becomes in, just becomes the way life is. Yeah. It does. I suspect I'll feel worse halfway through next week than I have that I need. To, well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say I feel bad about it. All you know, it's just you just to go into get on more. with it. I guess. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I'd be interested um, to find out a bit about your leadership journey. So um, you alluded to some specific um, times in your life coming up, but. Did you consciously go into leadership? Um, I know from your biography that you were the specialty lead for critical care and then you rose up to divisional director and then finally to the chief executive role that you have now. Was that a conscious decision to go through all these things or did any of these roles sort of fall into your lap or present themselves opportunistically? I think there's probably a bit of a yes and no answer to that. I mean, my dad was a senior manager, so I've always... I've always had a view uh, that there is a reality that, that a very effective senior manager, uh, particularly change manager, clinical manager, uh, particularly if you're managing change rather than managing status quo, will probably will will benefit more patients than than most individual clinicians. And I think you know, I think that's sometimes something that makes clinicians raise, raise their eyebrows. But I think I've always recognised that's a reality. Mm-hmm. Having said that, I came to Birmingham when I came to Birmingham as a consultant. I, my Thoughts are on the academic projects I was running at the time, uh, some research I was doing into sepsis and mitochondrial function. That, that was on my mind. I found coming here, I found the ITUs quite disorganised, so I did get involved in. Well, there were six ITUs when I came here. Now we have one one ITU service running, mm-hmm. running the whole thing. Uh, I'm wholly convinced it works much better. I think there's quite a lot of data to demonstrate that. Uh, so I sort of got involved in trying to as I saw it, improve the ITU. And I thought, 
I thought I made quite a bit of progress with that in, in two or three years. And then the trust reorganized itself and, and had a conversation with the then chief operating officer, uh, a certain Mark, Mark Whitmore, who some, some people will know Mark's name. He's got a, a prominent figure in health. Um, he was our chief operating officer. Uh, they reorganized the trust and I, I asked him if I could carry on, if there was a role for me carrying on managing the ITUs. Mm-hmm. He said, well, the way it's working now, the only way you can stay in charge of the ITUs is if you also take on managing theatres and anaesthesia because we've packaged them up. So, at, you know, taking that first sort of real management role, if you like, rather than the unofficial coordinating uh, role of, of the ITU, that was very much in order to keep keep going with the ITU and the rest of it. I sort of thought, well, I guess, you know, if I must sort of thing. <laughs> uh, but, uh, no, I, I enjoyed it. Um, three three years later, the, the next most senior post came up and, Again, it was probably at that stage more a more similar sort of thing. You just sort of think, well, I uh, yeah, I'm, I'm halfway through this. You know, there's loads of stuff I'm, uh, that, that is going quite well, so I don't want to lose control of that. And um, you sort of look around, and you think, well, I'm not seeing anybody anybody applying for this job that I'd be very comfortably working for. So why don't I go for it myself? Sort of thing. Well, seven eight years later, then similar sort of thing happened with the medical director job, really, and you you just sort of end up there. Really, <laughs> it's it's a strange strange thing. I've never planned a career. Uh, and if you'd asked me five years before I applied for this job, if you'd asked me, do you want to be the chief executive? I said, don't be so ridiculous in pretty blunt, blunt terms. Uh, but again, you just, time moves on. You did 12, I did 12 years as the medical director. Yeah, you, you begin to think, well, I don't want to leave the trust because I've been here. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff in the trust that, that be around digital and our own EPR and stuff that, that's very much sort of driven by me. And you think, I don't want to leave all this. Yeah. I'm not sure I can carry on this job. What else can I do? Well, actually, the only other thing I can do is that job if they think that it's, if the chair thinks I'm suitable. And so here we are, really. But these are incredibly fulfilling jobs. I mean, they're fantastic jobs. I mean, you know, you know the University Hospitals Building is a big, big trust. Um, debatably, it's when they measure the biggest trust in the country. We've got some really fantastic people here. Uh, we've got some absolutely fulfilling Doubtless, as trainees, you you will know some of the names of, of some of the, the doctors we've got here because there's some world class people here. Yeah. Uh, and being able to 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 work with them and uh, and help them deliver the extraordinary things they deliver is I mean it's an extraordinary privilege. So, I mean, yeah, it's hard work. If you can just take a step back and don't worry about the difficult meeting you had that day or the the you know the media article that's upset everybody that day or whatever. Uh, and you say, well, actually, look at what we've achieved over the last 18 months. They're, they're great jobs. That leads me very nicely to my next question. Um, I know no day would, no two days will be the same. And as you said, uh, and at the time of recording, we're dealing with a, a huge pandemic and a huge healthcare crisis. But can you give me some insight into what the day in the life of a chief exec of a humongous hospital trust is? In terms of, from the perspective of the average clinician, and I don't mean that in a disparaging sort of way, but yeah, hands-on, people doing hands-on jobs that actually do stuff, you know, you you do operations or, or an outpatient clinic, you, you, you have a patient episode, you prescribe them something or you discuss a treatment with them. In that sort of tangible way, I don't really do anything. Uh, in fact, my team think it's, um, you know, my team largely think it's some sort of total failure if they actually have to get me to sign a document or actually do anything actual, ten, actually tangible. <laughs> but uh, it's about it's about communicating with people. It's about understanding uh, 
you know, listening is there's there's a very old quote about leaders have two ears and one mouth and should be used in that proportion, which is absolutely right. I mean, you've, you've got to understand where everybody's coming from. You, but trying to get all these talented people, there's there's a very strong relationship between, you know, it's not uncommon for very, very talented people to be to be quite um, difficult on, on occasions because they're driven. Uh, they know what they want and getting getting all these people in the same direction is, is a challenge. Uh, uh, and it's about it's, it's about taking the decisions that, that that need to be taken and taken at your level. It's about getting that balance right between giving clarity and saying, okay, this one's really difficult, so I'm going to make this decision so everybody knows where they are, without going down to the level of telling people who know better uh, what, how to do their job. You know, um, just talking to people really. Ninety percent of what we do is talking to people, getting people aligned, getting people understanding what where we're going. Um, so yeah, it's 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 quite intangible and it's quite it's quite um, it, it, certainly coming from a clinical background where it's very practical, you know, very task driven. If you like, it's it's completely different, very much more a cajoling sort of role, really. And yeah. so people often see the chief executive sort of very much being in charge, and what I say goes. It's just not like that at all. Uh, you can issue instructions as much as you like. Uh, nothing will happen if you don't take people with you. Sounds very much like a lot of um, managing people, as you said, managing expectations and sort of being the shepherd to herd everyone in the direction that is most beneficial for um, that particular situation. Um, It it seems like, and and it's funny when you mentioned earlier about um, people knowing that things have gotten really serious, if they have to get you in to assign something or do something, it reminds me very much um, as my position as a surgical registrar. Um, I almost sometimes feel that I failed if I have to call the boss in the middle of the night to come in and do something. So you're, you're kind of like the consultant in charge of thousands and thousands of people, not just staff members, but also patients. So um, hats off to you for doing an incredible... But there's also that thing, I'm sure you'll recognise this, how, how often when you sit down and say, okay, I've got to call the boss about this, yes. how often do you answer your own question in, in sitting down and saying to yourself, okay, how am I going to how am I going to present this coherently to the boss? At the end of that, you think, actually, now I know the answer to the question I was going to ask the boss. And so, yeah, that applies at our level as well. People in, in thinking, shall I take this to chief exec, people just take themselves a little little moment and sometimes the answer's obvious because you just take a step back and I think there's a huge lesson in that isn't there that, that, you know, that there are times where you just need to get however busy it feels there are times where the best thing to do is give yourself a give yourself five minutes uh, to free free your thoughts and just think it through well, one of my um best trainers said to me that you always have 30 seconds so anytime I'm panicking or unsure about a stressful situation that whole idea of stopping and thinking but um with regards to um difficult situations I struggle to think of a more difficult time for the country or for our profession than this pandemic at least certainly not in the last 50 or 60 years what was your initial reaction to the pandemic and the lockdown as the head of such a large health corporation well, when you think back to, uh, it seems a long time ago, doesn't it? You think back to, to March, April last year, um, some of the projections we were getting, I mean, they were projections that we would have to ventilate uh, 2,000 people in, in this organisation alone. You've probably seen some of those figures. I and mean, it was absolutely terrifying. Uh, and, of course, uh, you, know, you said you're not going to ask anything political. I'm not being political, but, you know, there, there were 
inevitably massive uh, logistic problems in getting ventilators, for instance, uh, because they were bound to be. I mean, who, who has a who has a warehouse with with ten thousand ventilators sitting in it? I mean, if if, if the government had had a warehouse with ten thousand ventilators, they'd have been criticised for that pre-COVID. So, yeah, the the, the health and you know, the, the companies we buy off make their kit at the, at the rate that we need them in in normal times, don't they? So the, the stuff just wasn't there. So they, you know, they were very very anxious times when weren't they back back then? How were we going to manage to do that? Um, having said that, in a managerial sense, there is a there's a counter argument that says in some ways it's managerially quite a simple task because it's a single task. If you think back to the last spring, we stood out certainly in this organisation where because we've we've had by far the highest number of COVID, almost twice as many COVID patients as anywhere else in, in Birmingham and Solihull, probably because of the population we serve. Well, inevitably because of the population we serve, its diversity and and and, and the levels of deprivation in the populations we serve, uh, almost certainly what what drives it. Um, but you know, back back then, managerially there there was one task. Uh, everybody understood it. There was almost no dissent. There was nobody sticking their hand up saying, "Hang on a minute, I want to carry on doing my cardiac surgical operating." Because everybody, everybody got where they were. So, so in some ways, some of the most difficult managerial tasks were done for you, if you see what I mean. Because there was a blank checkbook and there was one thing to do, if you like. Now that one thing was complicated and stressful and, and difficult, but there was no. There were no competing priorities. So in some ways, some of the most difficult, very senior management tasks were, were set for you. So, so it is really a much more operational world than you know, day by day, how, as I say, you're having a daily call. You know, what are today's problems? What are you worried about today and tomorrow? And we'll worry about the day after tomorrow. tomorrow. Uh, so it became quite simple in, in some ways. Uh, I think the situation we're in now is actually much more complicated. Because now, now we're unwinding. So we're, we're down to 350 odd patients, uh, COVID patients. Still got 110 in the ITU here, here, but we've got a big ITU setup. So that means we're beginning to free up some ITU beds for the most urgent work. Um, so, but suddenly you're getting into that complexity of everybody quite reasonably, justifiably, and appropriately thinks their patients the most important. So you're moving back into that world. You've got to balance, um, you know, the risks of, of, uh, I think we're increasingly confident that rates are going to continue to fall because they seem to be falling. Um, we seem to be seeing a vaccine effect now as well as just a, a, a lockdown effect. So I think we're reasonably confident we'll continue to fall. So, but it's taking out all the additional support we put into the ITU, giving people a rest and a break, which is fundamentally important because there's absolutely no way we can say to people, thank you really, thank you very much for spending six weeks in an unfamiliar environment as an ITU reservist as we call them, but now we need you to get back into an operating theatre and do some stuff. Um, but also the operating theatre schedules we had are no longer uh, are not fit for the backlog pressures we've got now because the, we need to... So there's a whole heap of conflicting uh, um, uh, agendas back on the table now. So this is, this I think, this is probably the most complex part of the whole um, process um, for, for us, and I think probably across the country, how are we going to stand services back up give people a break, um, make people really believe that we really appreciate what they've done uh, done for us uh, and for our patients in the last 10 months while still saying, actually, there's a lot of patients out there that need, need surgery, uh, and, and we've just got to do that. Uh, so you know, the, the human and, and technical um, balances of, of putting all, all that in place and saying to, to 
you know, clinicians and patients um, from specialties that, that are not uh, priority two and three, which is pretty much all we're asked to do at the moment. So, uh, you know, and, and from a clinic, clinician point of view, we, we're having to say to people, I know you are a specialist, a, a national and sometimes world-renowned expert in this, but actually we're just, we're not going to be doing this for a while. Uh, you know, these, these are really difficult messages. And I think the next phase is going to be, at the moment, people are very uh, tolerant, if you like, of the fact that the NHS has got a big backlog, but that won't last. Uh, neither should it. People shouldn't expect to wait six, eight weeks for their cancer surgery. Um, so I'm, uh, I'm not suggesting that's in any way unfair, but it won't be long before we're under real pressure, uh, uh, as well as the pressure we're putting on ourselves, the emotional pressure that people put on themselves to deal with their patients. We'll be under real pressure in the media and, and politically to to you know crack through this this backlog. Um, and I'm you know I, I, I'm I was going to say privilege, and I, I think it's a privilege. Most people uh, I think probably would. Uh, you know, I, I get to spend time with senior politicians and, um, and and senior players in the NHS, um, and I know that they I know they believe the same as me that that it's, you know there is this balance that we really should be thanking our staff for getting us and our patients through in the way we have, but we still need we still need to ask them to do more, and that's really difficult. It's difficult to do that in, in a way that, that actually carries people with you rather than just think, you know, here they go again. They don't understand what I've been through. Um, so, so I think I think this is the most difficult phase. Having listened to you, that segment, I have a keen interest in, in medical leadership. And right. having listened to you, a lot of what I hear on reflection is a lot of humility. So you talk about, you know, leading a, a trust. But it's one trust that's got 20,000 staff. You could treat 2.2 million patients a year or, or over that. 2,700 beds pre-COVID and probably had to expand past that during COVID. And we, we're not even touching on your intensive care uh, capacity expansion as well. Your regional center for a number of different specialties and subspecialties. But in and amongst all that, still showing that humility. And when you talked about what the rest of your team are able to achieve without you having to do very much and you having to sign a paper means that from what I read from that is the empowerment to give them the latitude to do what they need to do. So all of these things coming together and then you finish that off by taking people along with you, you know, those are sort of the leadership qualities that, you know, when you think of a leader, what do you expect from them? And I think a lot of those boxes are ticked. My reflection is that that's the sort of leadership we need, uh, not just at a time of crisis, but at all times. So I guess my question to you is, do you think there's an element of being a clinician first and a manager second? That might not be how you see it, but a clinician leader. Do you think there are any elements of the clinical background that's helped you both through this crisis, but also through the restructuring process that your trust has gone through pre-COVID? I think... It's, it's a bit of a hot debate, isn't it? There's a, there's a big conversation about would we be better off with more clinical people in chief executives and very senior posts. Um, I, mean, I, th- I think, uh, in its broadest sense, competence is more important than background. Uh, I, I'm absolutely convinced about that. I certainly think the clinical background helps. I think it helps, particularly as I've been here, so people know me. I'm not just a Chap who used to be a doctor. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the senior guys here worked with me in the ITU. So, I, 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 yeah, the strength of that that understanding about clinical background, I think, it helps when you have to make a, a difficult decision about, you know, we can't afford this or 
yeah, we're going to have to do this, even though uh, yeah, we, we've done a big bit of work over the last nine months about you know, refocusing, putting far more emphasis on the emergency pathways than the elective pathways, um, which is you know, uncomfortable for a lot of clinicians. But I think it helps a lot of the doctors are more inclined to believe I'm doing it for the right reasons than if I was a non-clinical manager. So I think it helps with that initial piece. But, but I think I think the fundamental competence and and um, I, the piece that, that that I sort of glossed over is you do have to be decisive because I think there's a very clear thing that um, yeah you can make individual decisions that that people don't like and question and um, and second guess and and fundamentally disagree with, but unless unless they're just obviously profoundly bad decisions uh, on a routine basis that. Uh, Making a decision that is unpopular is better than in the long term is better than not making a decision. That's what really drives people nuts: is lack of clarity, lack of decision making. So when when you know go back to you to your session uh, when you said you ring the boss, the last thing you need when you do finally acknowledge you've got to phone the boss at two in the morning, the last thing you need is the boss to say, "I'm not sure what to do." Yeah, do another scan and then I'll, I'll see him in the morning. That is not the answer you're looking for, is it? <laughs> it's really you're, you're, look, you're looking. You, know, you are ringing because you want somebody else to take that responsibility and say, actually, this is difficult, so yes. this is what you do, and I, it's my fault if it goes wrong. Crudely speaking, that's 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 what you need, isn't it? So there's that the decisiveness piece. So, so I think I think um, I think you've got people of the right caliber from a clinical background. Um, it, it probably is best, but but I'm not an expert. I mean, you know, we've got specialists in in. We, we literally have, uh, I, I've sat on interview panels and appointed consultants to specialties I've never heard of in my time. Uh, you know, I, I didn't know that was a specialty. So just because I was intense, well, intensive care is quite a good background because you get to meet lots of people and you have a little bit of knowledge of lots and lots of different different things. But, I, but I'm not an expert in everything. I mean, you guys made more surgeries than I do at this stage in the game. I haven't practiced for six years or something. So you, you, you guys undoubtedly know more surgery than I do at this stage in the game. So, you know, if we were talking about a, a development in surgery, I would be listening to you for yeah. the clinical advice. I wouldn't be sitting there saying, you don't have to tell me about that. I know it because I don't. Right. Um, so I think it helps with the credibility. But, but as, as I say, I think fundamentally the ability to listen to people and, and be taken seriously by people and make, make decisions and stand by them. Not stand by them at all costs, because actually part of, uh, and I think, I think, I mean, you, you're very flattering. Thank you for that. I, I, you, I'll, I'll come again now. You've been so nice to me. <laughs> uh, but I, that, that piece about a degree of humility is fundamentally important because you don't know everything. You do get things wrong. Uh, and you've, the only, the only way that you, the only way you mitigate your mistakes is if people can come to you and say, look, when you made that decision, I'm not sure you knew this. Uh, and, you know, to be able to say, you're right, I didn't know that. So actually, and that does affect that decision. So I'll go back and modify that decision now you've spoken to me. That's fundamentally important. If, if you get too egotistical about it, then, then all is lost. Here And and I think those are wise words for, for any leader, present or future. Also want to explore some of your reflections around different phases of the pandemic. Okay, so the, the first phase we'll talk about is the peak and, and sort of you did touch on that in terms of your intensive care capacity. Now, I had privilege of working with the government here in, in terms of trying to expand our critical care capacity, but that's from a national level. 
as a chief executive, but one with intensive care as your background, when you did see some of those projections and then you did know that, you know, we don't have 10,000 ventilators waiting in a warehouse. What were some of your reflections around the tensions of we've got to expand capacity, both acute services and, and critical care and how we go about doing that, but taking people along with us? Uh, like all, like all big tasks, you just break it down. You break it down into so you know, it rapidly becomes apparent. The first thing you need to understand is how much oxygen you can get down the pipes in your building, uh, uh, which wasn't something most of us had thought about before. And we, you know, we've we've got um, four built four main hospital buildings in Birmingham, and the one I'm sitting in is is a new BFI as it happens, but it's a new building where we discovered we uh, we could ventilate, you know, we could run ventilators at a, a I can't remember the numbers, but to an extraordinary number, uh, because the oxygen infrastructure is is new and and overspecked. Actually, the reality is we so we could we could run six ventilators on each and each of our wards uh, in terms of oxygen flow. Uh, our other site, the Hartland site, um, uh, is pretty much maxed out as is. So the, one of the first things we had to do is work out that we had to we had to have a net flow of patients from the east of Birmingham to, to the south of Birmingham, um, simply because the infrastructure. So, so that becomes then a given. So, you, so once you get into the detail, you have some givens that you then have to build your, your response around. Uh, so the QE, it was a given that the QE had to absorb most of the pressure because you couldn't get oxygen down the pipes in the other buildings. So, so that's your building block. You, you start building around that. I think one of the most important things we did, though, uh, which probably does certainly help with my, my clinical background, is we send out some very strong messages to people that if, if we... Well, when we start moving away from the normal ratios we work and we were discussing a scenario that we had ITU patients on, on the wards scattered all around the ventilated patients scattered all around the hospital that was that was our super super surge plan or whatever ridiculous phrase was, was we were using for it uh, we had surge super surge and super super surge I think something like that um being very clear to people, if we move to a situation where we've got, you know, maybe only one ITU trained nurse for every five ventilated patients, they will have to do a very different job and they will probably have to be roving around, keeping an eye. But we were very clear that if we get to that, it is inevitable that, that something will go wrong because your staff intensive care units one to one for a reason because those nurses are really busy. Uh, and I've spent most of my career on one, so I, I can absolutely vouch for that. I'm sure you wouldn't disagree. I mean, it's not because we like ITU nurses and we like spending money on ITU nurses. It's because there is you know, certainly 22 hours of work to do looking after an ITU patient in any 24 hours. So you need somebody there all the time. So you just have to be very clear with people that we expect you to do your best. But you know, if we are ventilating a patient on a ward and there's no ITU nurse there and the tube falls out and nobody notices, we're not going to come down like a ton of bricks on you. We're going to say thank you for doing your best. Um, and, and, and trying to take that pressure off people that, that we just understand that the normal rules don't apply. We can't expect you to. We do expect you to do the best you can, but we don't expect you to to practice to the level of, of detail and quality that you normally would, because you simply can't. Yep. That was quite an unpopular message in, in in senior NHS circles. That was not a message that they wanted getting into the media. And I get all that. I get I get that. But I, at the end of the day, it's simply true, and I think the public understand that. You know. If, if if you're looking after three times as many patients as you normally would, you simply can't do that as well as you normally would. It might be marginal, uh, uh, but but you know you, you simply can't. And we we saw a lot of pressure sores in uh, uh, in the ITUs, uh, you know, around tubes around the mouth and stuff in in the first wave, 
far less so in the second wave because we'd learned a lot about um, other ways of mitigating that and some of those lessons will, will carry carry through. But there were undoubtedly there were complications of the intensive care we offered in the first wave that we wouldn't have found to be acceptable. Normally would have been would have been subject to RCA processes and people would have been held to, to account for some of the complications you saw in wave one, which we just said everybody's done the best they can. Let's just move move on from it. Yeah, and and that's some of the compassion and and understanding and support that goes with with your workforce. That certainly helps with that credibility, but also that feeling of inclusivity by by your workforce. Just one final question for me. Then we've talked about phase one from my questioning in terms of the peak of the pandemic. As we move towards phase two, phase three, phase four, the recovery element of of all of this, um, and you have delved into it a bit in terms of waiting times. But what are you, what are your priorities as an archetypal big health trust um, in England as the chief executive what would you say are, are your priorities in terms of how we recover or you as, as a trust recover from COVID um, in addition to some of the waiting times that you described for elective surgery just uh, before I do that just as a uh, can't help myself as a point of detail we had a lot more patients in uh, January than we did last spring so wave two was much bigger under so we peaked at 730 40, I think, patients in wave one in the, in the um, organization. We had uh, 1,060 in January. Oh. So wave, wave two was worse uh, right. around here. Um, and it never really went away. So, so uh, this week we dropped below 400 patients for the first time since October. So it, it's been pretty unrelenting relent- around here. Um, I mean, the big answer to your question, apart from the, um, apart from the sort of immediate recovery stuff that I've, that I've touched on. The, the big thing for me, and I, I was actually saying this quite volubly before uh, COVID, um, healthcare in the way we've always delivered is, is not sustainable going into the future. Uh, it, you know, we, we don't use technology in the way we should. Uh, you know, other industries have totally transformed with, with technology. When's the last time either of you, of you two um, went into a, a bank branch um, uh, and you know, I expect to be able to, to manage my money on my mobile phone, and I, I do just that. Um, you know, I, I make a provocative statement, which I've made a number of times in front of a whole heap of people from the NHS, and sometimes they challenge it initially, but but nobody has ever successfully challenged the statement that actually, the, 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 if you look at it from the perspective of a member of the public who develops a symptom uh, that that ultimately means they need to end up in in hospital in an operating theatre or, or whatever. Their, their, path, their pathway from developing that symptom, uh, having that question, as I call it, the question that they want the system to answer, and you guys uh, sticking a knife in, in them into an operating theatre, is actually exactly the same linear process that, that we had when the NHS was invented in 1950 or 1948 or whatever. The, pretty much the only thing we've done is, is remove the... Um, so back then, doubtless, there would have been a nice, high quality bit of paper and a nice fountain pen that the GP would have written <laughs> better on. That, that's moved onto an electronic platform. But apart from that, the process remains entirely linear. Uh, and there's all sorts of te- technology now that means that that is n- no longer the way we need to do things. <clears throat> as soon as you move off paper, then multiple people are going to look at the notes at the same time. You don't have to... You know, the, the process we use is still predicated on that piece of paper working its way down the system. And we answer the question that the patient has when when they turn up 
uh, and you as a clinician and that bit of paper and them are in the same room at the same time. There's no need for any of that these, these days. And that's before you get on to, to AI image reading. So you know, we, we've, we've um, got an AI pathway for skin suspected skin cancers now that we've got an AI system that, that um, uh, categorizes them better than the, the vast majority of doctors, if the truth is now. Uh, about whether they're malignant or non-malignant, so a huge number of patients. Uh, and it, you know, at the moment, we've fitted that into the normal pathway, but actually what we'd like to see in a very short number of months is pretty much open-door stuff. So if you've got a pigmented skin lesion you're worried about, just drop in, have it scanned. If it says, you know, more pertinent for me at my age than you, but if they you know, say that's a, it's a rare quartz, it's an age age thing, then that's fine, off you go. You know, why do, why do I need to interact? If a computer can tell me reliably that my pigmented spot is a seborrheic ward, not a melanoma, why do I need to speak to a clinician? Uh, you know, I, might, I might have some anxiety problems that, that a clinician can help with, but that's fine because that's a, that's a value-added clinical conversation. A clinical conversation that merely says the computer, uh, the computer has told me this isn't a cancer is not a value-added conversation. Um, and I don't think most of the public would disagree with that. So I think there's a whole heap of stuff, mammogram reading. We still have two people reading a mammogram. Computers can do it perfectly well. We're, we're pushing that. But for me, the whole, there is a massive transformation piece, which we absolutely have to do about using technology to, to smooth out these parts. We take out non-value-added um, processes. Um, you know, lots of lots of times when you think about it, lots of times that question, as I like to call it, the question that the patient has that leads them to go to their GP is often a simple factual question, but we still have that process. We have to end up in a in a consulting room with a consultant to answer that factual question. And there's multiple other ways of, of answering that question. You know, sometimes it's a blood result. Well, why, why aren't we just sending that blood result to a nephrologist if it's a creatinine and just getting an opinion? Uh, and, and why are we not using... Um, notifications on our phones to to tell our patients um and i, I have uh, regular screening appointments i've got an iga nephropathy which is which i've screened for every now and again i get about three letters by an organization every time i have an outpatient appointment it's bleeding ridiculous and actually all i all i need to know is my results, are, my results are stable i could get that through a notification once i'm stable i can just get a notification saying you need your blood test another one saying everything's okay well you know, i i could go on i just yeah, that's what we have to do, because because for me, if we if we carry on trying to provide healthcare at the levels we need to to satisfy the aging population, and of course, you know, it's not a popular concept, but survivorship is a massive issue. You know, the, the reality is we are looking after patients who thirty years ago would have been dead. I mean, when I was when I was a, when I was a trainee, I was involved in the first um, thrombolysis trials for for myocardial infarction. Wow. Uh, so, so the first couple of years of my, my career, if you came in with cardiac sounding chest pain, we put you to bed. We did a blood test three times daily. We did a, a creatinine kinase three times daily. Uh, you had five days bed rest, and if, then, then you would end. And if something went horribly wrong in the meantime, we sort of said, oh dear, really. <laughs> so yeah, there, there are so many people who, have, who are surviving with the healthcare we're offering now, but of course they don't survive 100% fit. They survive with comorbidities and they get increasingly so the demands are going up and up and up uh, and the amount of gdp you would have to spend on servicing healthcare through a traditional model for me uh, you're getting into arguably and um, possibly controversially an american type system where 
you're spending so little on supporting the population that actually you're creating ill health and then you're spending more money dealing with the ill health uh, uh, and um, people are living in rubbish housing and all sorts of other things that we know generate ill health and I, so we, we just have to find a way of doing it much more efficiently it turns people's you know highly credible highly motivated highly trained clinicians uh, worlds on the, on its head talking about some of that stuff and so it's it's difficult it's really really difficult stuff uh, to to push through and you, you yeah i can see you two smiling and uh, uh, you get the impression you, you're pretty amenable to that sort of thing but you know you you are a different generation uh, and you've grown up with a mobile phone and you've and you, you, again, yeah, I, I remember buying my first mobile phone uh, when I was a re- when I was a senior registrar. It is, it is a, a great innovation, and I remember the first digital one coming in, which was an extraordinary leap forward. You know, the, the smartphone is only twelve years old. Remember. Gosh, that's- uh, crazy to, to think about and I guess you, you've touched on a lot of um, thoughts that many people have had that one benefit of the pandemic is that it has really driven forward technology and innovation and as you say there's a lot of things that we've discovered that we can just do so much more efficiently having um, sat in and run virtual clinics myself in my clinical life there are so many conditions that you feel it's such a massive waste of time bringing patients into mm-hmm. hospital to be told simple information you can do in a digital or remote way. Is there, um, just one little question for me, is there any one innovation that Birmingham has either taken on board or pioneered that you're particularly proud of in the context of the pandemic? Uh, well, the, the skin analytics stuff is, is we've done during the pan- pandemic, uh, I, I think, in, in the context of when I, our transformation project, which was going before the pandemic, has continued. Um, so I think that's probably, paradoxically, in terms of the pan- pandemic, that's probably the thing I'm most proud of uh, the team for, for doing it, creating the capacity to continue the transformation work dur- during the... Uh, and some of that's because we've partitioned the team. So we've got innovation people and day-to-day operations people, and we've, we've quite deliberately s- split them. Because, of course, the, emo- the emotive nature of healthcare means if you if you say to somebody, "I want you to do some some good high, high thinking stuff and manage the A and E," you can spend your entire time in A and E because the A and E needs managing. Uh, and you know, if somebody ever says to you, uh, same, same for you, if, you, if somebody says to you, uh, I, "I could really do with the, the operating theatre because uh, there's a really sick patient," but you were planning to do a uh, write up a research project that day. Well, guess what? Guess what? Guess what isn't going to get done that day? It's going to be the you know, the research project can wait, can't it? Uh, and then before you know where you are, it's waited so long it never happened. Uh, and you, know, you you must have examples of that. We all we all have. So I think you have to create people whose day job it is to do the stuff that could wait, otherwise it never gets done. So so I'm quite quite proud of that side of things. It was pre-pandemic, but we've we've been refining it during pandemic. I think. If I can slightly recast your, uh, I'm not trying to dodge your question, but if I can slightly recast your question, the, the thing we've done, which I think has the biggest potential to really be a building block of, of a, a different system, is, is put an AI, uh, AI triage system at the front of our A&Es. Mm-hmm. So we've got a system which you, which you can look up. It's called Ask A&E. If you type Ask A&E Birmingham into Google, uh-huh. you, you, you'll find you can put your sore throat symptoms or whatever into it, and it'll tell you whether you need to come to A&E, A&E or not. Uh, and we are um, uh, we are working with GPs now to, to uh, try and get that as a common common platform, if you like, across GP practices. So instead of 
is, so that that for me at the moment is reason I, I'm a defended supplier because it's a brilliant bit of software, uh, uh, but it, it, in terms of outputs, it's reasonably crude at the moment. It says, "Don't worry about it; these symptoms are harmless; it'll go away," or it says, "You may want to go to your pharmacy because they'll be, be able to give you something," or "You should see your GP at some stage," or "Go to A and E." Crudely, uh, it's a bit more sophisticated than that, but it, but it doesn't tell you what's the matter with you, and it doesn't it doesn't go into grim detail. Uh, but I think it's the building bones of some building blocks of something which we can actually then start taking control of the entry point to the to the system. Uh, so so we can start letting specialists take control of the the referral patterns. So we can actually get you know cardiologists to say, you know, if you ask the patient this set of questions and they say yes to this, then I need to see them urgently. If I get slightly different responses, I can see them in a week. And if I get totally different responses, well, actually, I don't need to see them at all. Because uh, a lot of patients simply want reassurance. When you answer a lot of patients, I mean, sadly, it is often not the case. But actually, the, the answer a lot of patients want when they come to see you is there's nothing to worry about. Yep. Uh, and, you know, as soon as the symptoms are tolerable as long as they know it's not cancer or it's not going to kill them or it's not going to harm them. And you, you, you know that. It's, so you can, you can provide that reassurance without a consultation if it's appropriate. Uh, but you know, I think it rapidly builds towards. So we we call that digital first. We rapidly then build towards digital first, diagnostic second. So as you start getting more and more imaging processes read by AI, there's no reason why you can't, for any given symptom set, if the answer is you need a, an image, why not just have that image, have it read by a computer, and if the answer is there's nothing to worry about, that's fine. You've job done. Who needs to see a doctor? Uh, it's, about, it's about keeping the, the, for me, it's about pushing doctors into the, in, in, more firmly into the space where we actually, I say we, so it's, it's still there, isn't it? Where you, I should say, actually add value, real full value, rather than just passing on bits of information that, that could be passed on either by other people or by machines, frankly. But it's a bit disconcerting for people with a lot of, a lot of that stuff. As you alluded to, Ceci and I are smiling, and, and part of the reason why I'm smiling is because even pre-pandemic, one of my biggest ambitions was looking at not just uh, artificial intelligence in healthcare, but also the concept of asynchronous interactions with patients, the notion that we both have to be sat uh, either face-to-face or looking at the same screen at the same time to interact, I think is one that's archaic and in future will no longer be the case. So I am absolutely fascinated to see where you know you go with this. We have elderly patients who spend days in hospital while we wait for the relatives who might live in Southampton or whatever to be able to come up. And again, I'm not, not criticizing because people have busy lives. Yeah. So I, I can't come up till Saturday because I'm working. That's fine. But actually, that's three days that mum is spending in hospital waiting for that very important discussion about where, where mum goes. Why? You know, there's three of us on this call. It seems to be working all right to me. Why couldn't why aren't we using this sort of stuff? Listening to you, we can talk to you for days, and I, I recognize the time pressure, particularly when we start talking about, you know, as a, as a trust, your interaction with your know, CQC, HEE, etc. And I can see from your face that you know we can, we can explore that in a, in another hour. But I guess one final question for me really is: there is a lot of learning to be done in the handling of the pandemic and and what we've all been through, but now it's not the time for that and and that time will come but in this moment of reflection can you think of one do-over and i wouldn't call it a mistake i would say if there was one thing you would do differently should you have a do-over starting from january 2020 what would that be yeah i think that's really difficult because 
it's an old and accurate statement that hindsight's a wonderful thing. So it's really difficult to strip out the hindsight. And the one thing, if I knew then what I knew now, the one thing I wouldn't do is build the Nightingale Hospitals. Uh, because, oh, interesting. Well, I, well certainly ours. I shouldn't say hospitals because some of them have been used. I wouldn't build a, wouldn't have built a building. You know, we, we, I, led, I led the um, building of it, so I was heavily involved in it. Um, it's, you know, I think it's a good example just because you know, if you said to me now, if you gave me a, a time machine and I went back, I, I would say save the money because we're not going to use it. However, the comfort blanket that it, you know, we went into phase one fresh from those dreadful scenes in northern Italy and in Spain, patients breathless on corridors with no beds, they're lying on floors in corridors, all that stuff that you saw. The comfort blanket that knowing we had that capacity up our sleeve if the, if the worst happened uh, was well worth the money. So <laughs> I, I say, I, th- I think that's I think I quoted, and I've asked that question a bit, and I always quote that, but simply for that reason, that it's one of those things that if, if you knew what you knew now, that we would never need it, of course you wouldn't have built it. Of course you wouldn't have spent the money on it, and I wouldn't have had my team, including including my wife, working 16 hours a day for 10 days to get the thing up, up and the pressure and stress of that, that time, thinking we're going to need this. We've got to get this up and running in 10 days' time because... The projections were we would we'd need that capacity, and that was probably the most stressful fortnight of the whole the whole thing. But then, of course, we did we didn't need it. And the reality the reality always was trying to staff a nightingale when the hospitals were full was always going to be a disaster. Um, so, so as I say, with the benefit of hindsight, it's clearly something you wouldn't have done. But actually, if you put me back in the same moment in time, I would still be saying, "Yeah, let's do this." Yeah, exactly. Because as you say, with the with the projections and the numbers you're faced with, it almost would have been reckless to see yourself doing nothing. Yeah. Yeah, and so at the time, it was the right decision. But I, I, yeah. I totally understand that sentiment. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, thank you so much for being it's, so it's candid with us. Um, as Greg said, we could talk to you for hours. I'm sure the stories and the lessons you have surrounding this pandemic and just your leadership journey in general they they must be countless. Thank you so much for giving up your time. A pleasure. For those of you guys listening, if you have any questions or comments, the email addresses, as always, comes at rcsed.ac.uk. So that's C-O-M-M-S at rcsed.ac.uk. From me, that's goodbye. Greg, do you have anything you want to say? Listen, thank you very much for your time. It has been a pleasure. It's a genuine pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, guys, um, stay safe and be kind to each other. Bye, everyone. Bye.